So South Africa is a perfect example, a horrifying example of the deep state's handiwork. Uh, it's an example of the deep state's lies. It's an example of the deep state's strategy, and it's an example of the deep state's goals. I think it has some really important cautionary tales for America. Uh, if we're not careful, we are going to end up in the same boat. Uh, so I want to talk in particular about the Afrikaner nation. Uh, these are America's closest cousins anywhere on the world. They, they created this little outpost of kind of Western Christian civilization on the southern tip of Africa. And uh, they contributed so much to the world, so much to the West, in particular to the free world. They provided crucial aid in World War II, for example. Uh, they single-handedly bled the Soviet war machine for decades. Uh, you know, the entire might of the communist world was up against them. And uh, they held their own, uh, even in the face of Western sanctions. And uh, they even performed the first heart transplant. They developed nuclear power. They developed their own weapons industry. I mean, it, it really became a first world country in the truest sense of the word. But, um, you know, we need to understand about South Africa that uh, it really never was one nation. Right? It was it was a collection of nations. And, and I want to talk about the Afrikaner nation in particular, because, again, there are some cautionary tales for America. Uh, today, South Africa has become what they call a, a rainbow nation. They, they basically amalgamated all of these different independent nations, all these nations that are very different culturally, linguistically, historically, religiously into one giant unitary state. Uh, and today, South Africa is ruled by a racist communist regime. And, and the situation is spiraling downwards very, very quickly. Um, so you have a uh, life expectancy has dropped about 10 years just in the last uh, 25 years or so uh, since the takeover of South Africa by this communist government. And, you know, technically, it's the African National Congress in a coalition government with the South African Communist Party. But the ANC has been a communist front group for, for many decades. And this is an established fact now. Um, we have crime is completely out of control. They say South Africa is the, the rape and murder capital of the world. We have poverty exploding. Uh, they said in the first five years after the communists took over in 1994, uh, real income of an average South African fell by 40 uh, percent. And that's according to the National Bureau of Economic Research here in the United States. Uh, within a decade, uh, you had the number of people living on less than a dollar a day doubling right? So from when the communists took over. And today, you know, the communists, their, their raison d'être, if you will, was that we're, we, we believe in equality. Well, uh, that didn't work out for South Africa either. In fact, uh, since the communists took over, South Africa now has one of the most unequal distributions of wealth in the world. Uh, you basically have the, the communists and, and their cronies have tons and tons of money and some of the people who were able to kind of cling to some of their wealth. Uh, over the years, and then everybody else is just dirt poor, right? Including uh, many, many people within the Afrikaner nation, many people within uh, Mandela's Shosan nation, many people within the Zulu nation, etc. You have a murder rate that's a thousand percent higher than the United States of America, more or less, depending on whose statistics you believe. Uh, and you have polls, uh, you know, even 10 years after the fall of apartheid and the takeover by the communists, where the majority, a strong majority of South Africans, including black South Africans, believe that life was better under apartheid. And it's not that they want to go back to apartheid, but you know, the, the neighborhoods were safe, the trains ran on time. And so a lot of people have a kind of nostalgia for that. And, and you know, that's really in contradiction to what we hear so often. 
Um, another big problem that, that has resulted in South Africa is, of course, the, the ongoing slaughter of Afrikaner farmers, the Boers, if you will. Uh, they are being slaughtered in massive numbers. In fact, you're more likely to die as a South African farmer than you are as, uh, as an American soldier in Iraq or in Afghanistan, to, to give you some sense. They have the highest murder rate in the world of any group of people. Uh, you have uh, babies being tortured in the most brutal fashion imaginable. I mean, they, they torture them with electric drills and blow torches. They rape people with broken bottles. I mean, some of the, the crime and the horror uh, is just mind-blowing, right? You, you can't even believe this stuff. The government lies about it, uh, but the evidence is, of course, overwhelming. Uh, and now the government has openly come out and they're working to steal the land of the South African farmers. They, they claim that uh, sometime in the distant past the land was stolen, and so we're going to steal it all back. Uh, they also spread all these lies that uh, Afrikaners own you know, three-fourths of the land. That's not even close to true. They own less than 20%. In fact, they own less land than the government owns. And much of that uh, is over in the western part of South Africa, which is very, very dry, where you need an enormous amount of land just to run run, uh, you know, some cattle or some sheep or, or goats if, you, if you're fortunate enough to be able to grow that there. Uh, we also have now a, a looming genocide, which is very disturbing. Uh, we first picked this up in the New American, uh, well, actually, we had warned about it back in the 80s and the early 90s, but we picked up the story again in 2012 with a cover story. Uh, about the looming genocide. And what happened was the world's top expert on genocide, a gentleman by the name of Gregory Stanton, uh, had gone down to South Africa in 2012 on a fact-finding mission. Uh, and keep in mind, this guy was a guy who, who literally campaigned against apartheid. I mean, you know, nobody can accuse him uh, of, of being uh, pro-apartheid or anything like that. But he warned that there was direct evidence of government incitement to genocide. Um, I want you to see some of these videos here. Here, here is uh, Gregory Stanton talking about these things. We raised South Africa from stage five to stage six when Julius Malema began to go around singing the Shoot the Boar song again. It became clear to us that the Youth League was in fact this kind of an organization. It was planning this uh, kind of uh, genocidal massacre and also uh, forced displacement of whites from South Africa. And so we raised it to six. When Julius Malema was then, thanks to the TAU and others, tried for hate speech and was convicted and was in fact enjoined by the judge from ever singing that song again, um, we said, oh, you know, there was a great sense of relief from some of us that maybe South Africa was pulling back. But then the president himself started singing this song. Well, this really worries us now. Um, and one thing that I have learned on this trip is just how strong the Communist Party still is in the, uh, the African National Congress, COSATU, uh, the Youth League, um, and other parts of this uh, system. Uh, after his trip, 
the Genocide Watch, the organization he created, uh, ended up raising its genocide alert. At the time, they had uh, eight stages of genocide, uh, basically eight being denial after the fact, seven being the extermination process. Uh, they raised South Africa's genocide threat level from a five to a six. Uh, they, they reported that numerous high-ranking officials were, were advocating genocide. Uh, here, for example, you see uh, Julius Malema. At the time, he was the head of the ANC Youth League. Uh, here he is uh, singing songs advocating the extermination of Afrikaners. Check this out. Shoot to kill the monster. Shoot to kill, kill them. Kiss the poor, the farmer. Kiss the poor, the farmer. Purpa, pa, purpa, pa. Attention. So that's the kill the boar song, shoot the boar. Uh, that's uh, kind of what they do. And uh, keep in mind, this guy is very, very close links to the deep state. He since went on to, to found a new political party, the Economic Freedom Fighters, the EFF. Uh, it's a Marxist, a very racist political party that wants to steal basically everything and nationalize it. And he has very close links to people like uh, Lord Robin Renwick, who was close to Mandela, uh, you know, a deep state character out of the UK. Um, and you know, even all the way to the top, right? Here's a video of President Zuma, Jacob Zuma. Uh, he was the president until recently when Ramaphosa took over. And here he is uh, singing genocide songs. Check this out. Uh, he also, uh, during his trial for rape, uh, he's, his defense in the rape trial was, well, her conga was so short. Right? You, you know, we can't just resist a, a woman who's like that. And so that was his defense at his rape trial. He's a, a polygamous, uh, racist communist. And so these are the kinds of people who run South Africa today. Can you imagine any other country where the president was singing genocide songs, advocating the extermination of a minority group? People would be horrified, and rightfully so. And yet when it happens in South Africa, nobody wants to talk about it. Why not? Because this is the deep state's handiwork at work. So first, we need to talk about some history, because you really can't understand South Africa without, or the Afrikaner nation without some history. So um, you know, Jan van Riebeek, uh, he was a, a a Dutch man, he arrived on South African soil back in 1652. And uh, there were actually no Bantu peoples anywhere to be found. In fact, they didn't meet Bantu peoples, you know, black Africans for uh, over a hundred years, actually. There were some Khoikhoi peoples, some nomadic um, hunter-gatherers, but uh, they, they got along pretty well with them. They traded and, until some of the Khoikhoi started uh, stealing cattle and things like that. And so uh, it didn't always work perfectly. But, um, you know, the very beginning of this history uh, starts off in the public mind with a myth. You know, there's this fake idea that the Dutch arrived and just started enslaving and killing, killing and pillaging. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, one of the big uh, motivators for people who wanted to go down there was actually to spread the gospel to bring uh, Christianity and the light of the gospel to uh, people who had not had it before. And um, so for the first century, you know, there really no interaction with the, the black tribes that were further uh, northeast in southern Africa uh, that had been migrating down from central Africa. And, um, you know, west of the Fish River, there really were no black, uh, black peoples, no black tribes. Uh, eventually, the Afrikaners did meet uh, with the Bantu tribes. And, um, 
you know, they tried as much as possible to be to have peaceful interactions. And uh, they once they met uh, the Zulu peoples, um, they actually tried to, to come to an agreement with them. Uh, one of the early Afrikaner Voor trekkers, as they started trekking inland, uh, his name was Piet Retief, and uh, he had made a, an, an agreement with the Zulu king, Zulu king Dingane, that uh, Retief and his men would go and rescue some cattle for King Dingane, and uh, in exchange, King Dingane would allow them land rights, would allow them to settle and to own uh, this certain plot of land that they wanted. So they signed an agreement, they had a deal, and um, uh, Ritif and the Afrikaners, the Boer trekkers, Boer trekkers because they trekked uh, inland into, uh, into the interior of Africa, and, um, well, crazy story. So, uh, Retief and his men got back and they said, Hey, you know, here's your cattle. Here, here you go. And, uh, they, they went in to go uh, see King Dingane. They, they were disarmed. And, uh, instead of living up to his end of the bargain and uh, giving them the land rights that he promised, uh, he actually murdered them all. Uh, he had them impaled. Um, absolutely barbaric, just gruesome. Uh, and then after that, King Dingana sent his troops after uh, the Boer trekkers, slaughtered women and children. Uh, really was was not nice, right? Uh, so eventually the uh, the Afrikaners, the Boer trekkers, allied with uh, another Zulu king who was a rival to the throne of the Zulu nation. Uh, his name was uh, Mapande. And um, they allied against King Dingane. Of course, you know, the Afrikaners were pretty upset about what had happened, and you can probably understand why. So they allied with some other Zulus against King Dingane. And uh, that takes us to really one of the crucial events in the history of the Afrikaner nation. That is the Battle uh, of Blood River. This took place in uh, on December 16th, 1838. Uh, and this was a, a, a crucial turning point in the forging of what would become the Afrikaner nation. Uh, they basically... Uh, made a covenant with God. They were completely outnumbered, something like 15,000, other estimates say even 20,000 or more, uh, very disciplined, very skilled, uh, highly trained impis, uh, Zulu warriors, uh, set out to go exterminate uh, this Voortrekker party of uh, about 400 people. And uh, so the Voortrekkers, the, the Boers, the Afrikaners, got uh, their wagons, they put them in a circle, and they made a covenant with God. They said, God, if you get us out of this, we will officially be your people, right? We are, we are, we are, we are your children, and uh, we will you know, remember this day every year, and we'll consecrate our nation to you, and you know, we will be your people. And uh, incredibly, in fact, a lot of the Afrikaners thought this was some kind of miracle. Uh, not only did they survive, uh, thousands of Zulu warriors were killed in this attack, and uh, the Afrikaner party only suffered a few very minor injuries. And this is one of those battles that defined the Afrikaner nation. And so the, the reason I go through this history is because it's important to understand. You know, the, there, there's this kind of misconception among Western liberals that, well, the Dutch should have arrived and they should have just had a democracy with, uh, with the native peoples who they encountered. I mean, it's obviously nonsensical, right? These were pagan tribes. These, these were nations that had been uh, warring with each other for, for centuries, had been committing genocide against each other, uh, had no understanding of, of Christianity. They didn't have two-story buildings. They didn't even have a wheel. Uh, the idea that the, the Dutch Christians should have just arrived and said, hey, let's have a democracy, let's have a majority vote. Uh, I mean, it, it's beyond ludicrous. It's completely nonsensical. It's idiotic in the extreme. And anybody familiar with the history understands that. Uh, so as they established themselves, as the Afrikaner people established themselves as a nation, you know, they developed their own language. It, you know, it has its roots in uh, in Dutch, but it's, it's a unique language. And they became a unique people. They established a self-governing republics. They call them the Boer republics, uh, probably Probably the two most prominent ones being the Orange Free State and the Transvaal or the South African Republic. And, uh, 
you know, a lot of the Afrikaner people, a lot of the people from the Afrikaner nation are actually descendant uh, from slaves. What really defines them is the culture, the, you know, the Calvinist Christianity, um, the, the language, of course, you know, speaking Afrikaans and the understanding of the value of Western civilization. And so there are even uh, black people who speak Afrikaans, who consider themselves to be part of the Afrikaner nation. There are what South Africans call colored people, um, you know, not colored in the sense that uh, Americans used to use that term back in the 50s or the 60s, but in, in South Africa, it has a different meaning. Uh, and so these are also part of the Afrikaner nation. And, and what really defines them, again, is their Christianity, uh, their language, their shared history, and their culture. And many Afrikaners are actually descended from slaves. So there's this kind of mythology out there that the Afrikaner nation was enslaving people. That's not true, not at all. Uh, in fact, many of the Afrikaners are actually descendants from slaves. Uh, they did not steal land either, generally speaking. You know, there's a, another myth that the Afrikaners came down there and stole land. Uh, that is simply not true. Uh, typically, they settled uh, either empty land where nobody lived or they signed agreements with the natives. And, you know, there are some racists who say, well, the natives aren't capable of, of signing agreements. They're not able to make contracts because they weren't advance. Now, I mean, that, that's fundamentally disgusting to say that uh, people groups are not able to sign uh, agreements and to make trades with other people. The same thing happened uh, with the settlers who arrived in America. They made agreements with the natives. And again, no one's going to say the history was perfect. Of course, it wasn't. We were dealing with fallen human beings and fallen human beings sin and do bad things sometimes. But the, the myth that the Afrikaners came there and started stealing land uh, is just absolutely a giant fraud. Uh, they settled land that was unoccupied or they signed agreements, generally speaking, uh, with the natives that they did meet. Um, you know, we, we talked earlier about King Dingane and his betrayal of the Afrikaners. But I, I think it gives you a sense of how uh, these people believed, how they acted, right? They thought, hey, here's some, some natives. They own this land. Let's make a deal with them. We'll get the cows back for the king. In exchange, we'll get to settle this land. Um, and again, I, I mentioned that Afrikaners, the Afrikaner nation, is really the closest um, nation in terms of beliefs and history and, and all that to the American people, right? Um, many of the same ancestors, right? I mean, New York uh, used to be New Amsterdam, right? Was settled by Dutch uh, Calvinist Christians uh, who believed many of the same things. They were pursuing uh, religious freedom, right? Uh, and so they were forged into a nation in Southern Africa. And they have, you know, brave pioneers for ancestors, just like the American people do. But the deep state was very unhappy about this situation, you know, just like in America, right? So, um, Back then, a lot of the, the deep state surrounded Britain and the British Empire. And so the proto-deep state uh, decided that it was not okay that you had all these uh, Calvinistic Christians setting up their own free, self-governing republics where they could worship God and do their own thing. And so, you know, the deep state kind of, of over 100 years ago decided that these people had to be crushed. And the lead figure on this effort was named uh, Cecil Rhodes. Uh, actually, the nation of Rhodesia was named after him. And then the deep state eventually destroyed Rhodesia and handed over to uh, communists with Jimmy Carter and Henry Kissinger and others. Um, but so Cecil Rhodes, uh, you know, a Rothschild man, uh, decided, we'll talk about Rothschild and Cecil Rhodes in future episodes of Behind the Deep State, because these are really key individuals in understanding the deep state. But they uh, decided that they were going to wage war against these Afrikaner republics. They had come in there and they had demanded voting rights and they had demanded basically political control of these self-governing republics. Really, Cecil Rhodes wanted the gold, right? He wanted the, natu the natural resources. And the Afrikaners said no, you know, no. So uh, we ended up having these uh, Anglo-Boer wars or the Boer wars, as they're sometimes called, uh, and then the Great Boer War, which started in 1899. 
where you basically had uh, the British Empire waging total war against the Afrikaner people. They tried to destroy and crush these little self-governing republics uh, in interior South Africa. So um, these farmers, these Boers, that Boer actually means farmer in Afrikaans and, and Dutch, um, they valiantly resisted. You had about 50,000 farmers. Uh, they formed into commandos. They were very, very good riflemen, very good horseback riders. And they managed to hold off the British Empire for years. Uh, it, it actually came down to the British Empire sending literally half a million highly trained, highly disciplined troops to knock out these 50,000 uh, Afrikaner commando farmers. Uh, you know, some of these were just boys, you know, 14, 15, 16 year old kids fighting against the, the most powerful military on the planet at that time, the British Empire. And um the British did not play fair, right? The deep state, if you will, did not play fair. In fact, they, uh, they had a scorched earth policy. They took the Afrikaner women and children and put them in concentration camps to try to pressure the, the men to surrender. Um, something like 25,000 women and children, Afrikaner women and children, died in these British concentration camps. Mind you, this was way before Adolf Hitler would start uh, his concentration camps. It was really the, the British deep state that pioneered this, and it was effective. You know, it, it's hard for a man to fight when he knows that his wife, his daughters, his sons uh, are wasting away. They're being starved to death, being uh, brutalized in a concentration camp. Uh, the British deep state also put uh, native Africans into concentration camps. Something like 20,000 uh, black Africans died in these concentration camps. And ultimately, uh, after putting up a heroic resistance struggle, uh, the, the Boers ultimately did surrender and they were their republics were absorbed into the British Empire, creating what became uh, the Union of South Africa. Um, and, you know, over the years, the British started implementing a lot of these policies that eventually would come to be known as apartheid. And, you know, the idea was, especially as far as the Afrikaners were concerned, hey, we're dealing with a lot of separate nations here, right? You have the Zulu nation, you have the Xhosa nation, you have the Venda nation, the Soto nation, the Tswana nation, all these nations that are very, very different culturally. Uh, ethnically, linguistically, religiously, right? Uh, so very, very different nations. I mean, much more different than nations are, you know, even today. And uh, so the thinking was, hey, you know, these uh, native nations, they can have their historic homelands, they can be self-governing. Um, you know, they, they call them uh, Bantustans. They created these uh, independent self-governing homelands for the African nations that lived there. And then, of course, the Afrikaner nation, you know, set up its own uh, political institutions and uh, did its own thing. Uh, you know, some people kind of compare it to the American system of Indian reservations. Uh, there were some important differences, but, uh, you know, the idea was fundamentally the same. These people want to be on their own. They want to govern themselves. They want to control their own destiny. They should be allowed to do that. Uh, we'll do our thing over here. They can do their thing over there. We're Christian. You know, they're worshiping ancestors and spirits and things like that. Uh, and so some of these independent nations actually continue to exist to this day in Southern Africa, right? The kingdom of Lesotho for the Zoto people, right? Uh, you have the uh, Swaziland where the Swazi people live. You have the Botswana, where the Tswana people live. And um, you had, you still have Zululand, although it's kind of been absorbed into uh, this unitary state that is South Africa now. But some of these other nations actually retained their independence and their self-government. But just to give you some background on the history, right? If you want to know really the details of this history, there's a phenomenal book out there that I can't recommend highly enough. Uh, it's called Amabulu, The Birth and Death of the Second America. I actually have a copy right up there, Amabulu. It's a very, very good book. It's long, but um, he, he talks about the Afrikaner nation as being the second America and talks about how, you know, we have these parallels in our history. He goes through all the history and, you know, he doesn't sugarcoat anything. He doesn't, uh, you know, apologize or defend apartheid. 
um, you know, apartheid, of course, had some very significant problems. It obviously was not a perfect system. It had some very serious problems. You know, there were strict controls on uh, black Africans who lived in uh, kind of the Afrikaner areas, the British areas. But uh, what happened was the deep state ended up seizing on these real and imagined problems and, and started trying to exploit them. You know, that's what the communists specialize in is trying to take problems, trying to create grievances, fan the flames, and use those to spark conflict, to spark civil war, to really overthrow the system. And so the Soviet Union sent all these agents down. Uh, they created a, a front group, the South African Communist Party, which really was just controlled completely by the Soviet Union. And eventually they took over the African National Congress, uh, the ANC, which today governs South Africa in a coalition with the South African Communist Party. But, uh, you know, it, it's been known in ha for a very long time. We had tested testimony in our Congress. In fact, our Congress recognized this as early as the 1980s, that the ANC was really a front group for the South African Communist Party, which itself was a front group for the Soviet Union and the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Well, one of the key figures here was a, a young uh, radical revolutionary named Nelson Mandela. And I'm sure you've heard that name because now he is a, a cult hero and we're supposed to bow down and worship him. What they won't tell you is the truth, right? Uh, for one, you know, they, they make it out like he was a, a political prisoner and that he had been imprisoned for his peaceful political activities. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, he was imprisoned for terror. He was imprisoned for sabotage. He was imprisoned for bombing. Uh, he was imprisoned for murdering civilians, for being a communist. Of course, the Communist Party was banned uh, under the previous government because it was a terrorist, a communist organization run by the Soviet Union seeking to enslave the people of South Africa just like they had enslaved so many other nations in Africa across the entire continent. So eventually, uh, Nelson Mandela became the leader of the terrorist wing of the ANC called MK. And um, they were absolutely brutal to their opponents. And, and mind you, they were primarily brutal to black Africans, right? They, they murdered many, many more black Africans than they ever murdered uh, Afrikaners. They, they murdered black policemen. They murdered black soldiers. They murdered uh, just random black people that they accused of being uh, spies. Absolutely horrifying. Uh, Nelson Mandela's wife, Winnie Mandela, actually pioneered and, and was an open advocate of this thing known as necklacing. In fact, she was quoted and recorded talking about how using necklacing, we were going to liberate South Africa with our necklaces and our matches. Well, turns out this necklacing, to, to give you a sense of the barbarity of these communist groups that were being backed by the Soviet Union and the United Nations and China and Mozambique and Libya and Cuba and East Germany, uh, what they would do is they would fill one of these tires, you know, the rubber tire for a car with gasoline petrol. And then they would put it on somebody's neck and they would light it on fire. Uh, it is one of the most gruesome deaths that you can possibly imagine. And this is the kind of tactics that the Mandela family was using and was openly endorsing against their political opponents. Check this out. Barbaric way of reprisal. A tire is filled with kerosene or gasoline placed around the neck of an alleged collaborator and ignited. The victim may be a black policeman, a teacher, a soldier, a civil servant. It makes no difference. The atrocity is designed to terrorize blacks into ending all racial cooperation. And so, you know, all of this savagery, all of this barbarism led the U.S. government to declare the ANC and Nelson Mandela to be communists. In fact, they were put on the U.S. State Department's list of communist or of terrorist organizations. And uh, Mandela didn't actually come off that list of terrorists until 2008. Uh, Congress identified the ANC as a terrorist group in the 1980s. So, you know, it was universally recognized in the United States that these were absolutely brutal terrorist organizations murdering civilians. And yet, 
the deep state decided these are the people who should take over South Africa. And they did everything possible to make sure that would happen. So we, you know, we already talked about how the Soviet Union, East Germany, Cuba, all these different communist regimes were helping the ANC and the South African Communist Party. Uh, Zulus and, and Afrikaners were fighting very hard against this takeover. In fact, uh, the Zulu leadership, they created the political party, the Inkata Freedom Party, and they, they fought really hard to prevent the communist takeover of South Africa, as did many Afrikaners. But ultimately, with basically the entire deep state arrayed against them, you know, you had uh, Hollywood, you had the Council on Foreign Relations, you had uh, the establishment media, you had the communist-controlled World Council. Council of Churches, you had the United Nations, you had the Soviet Union uh, demonizing the Afrikaner people and uh, painting these communist terrorists as some kind of heroes, right? That were going to save South Africa. In 1990, the Council on Foreign Relations was openly praising and celebrating uh, Nelson Mandela, who again, remind, remember, this guy was on the communist, on the list of U.S. State Department terrorists. And in 1993, David Rockefeller even hosted this uh, dinner honoring Mandela and inviting, uh, you know, raising money for Mandela and for this takeover of South Africa. Uh, the foreign secretary, the foreign minister of the uh, South Africans eventually thanked David Rockefeller for funding the ANC for many, many years. Right? David Rockefeller, of course, is the ultimate deep state character, founder of the Trilateral Commission, key member of the Council on Foreign Relations, was on the steering committee of Bilderberg and on and on. We'll do a video on Rockefeller later, but you know, if you've been watching this program, Program, you know all about all these deep state organizations. Uh, Kissinger, of course, was a hand-picked lackey of the Rockefeller dynasty, the guy who always runs around blabbering about the need for a new world order, right? Well, he had earlier helped betray Rhodesia into the hands of the communists and the terrorists on behalf of the deep state. He basically forced uh, the Rhodesians to surrender power to Robert Mugabe, uh, who ended up going on a genocide, murdering the Matabele people in Netabele land. Um, unbelievable stuff. And so Henry Kissinger, another deep state guy, helped betray South Africa. The U.S. government put sanctions on the South African government, which, remember, was pro-America, anti-communist, was basically fighting the entire might of the communist world all on its own even in the face of U.S. sanctions. Um, and, and meanwhile, the U.S. government all along, uh, instead of saying, okay, well, you know, the South African government may not be perfect, but they certainly have the best human rights record on the continent. They're close allies of the United States. There's all these strategic minerals that we need to have access to, to be able to keep our military running, to be able to defend us against the Soviet Union, against the communist Chinese. Instead of saying, hey, let's stand with our allies, they said, nope, let's throw them under the bus. Let's help the communist terrorists trying to take over that nation. And so for many, many years, our State Department was showering hundreds of millions of dollars on the ANC and its allies. Uh, we know the Pan-Africanist Congress, a, a close ally of the ANC, a violent terrorist group, was actually created at the office of the U.S. Information Service in 1959 in Johannesburg. Uh, we know that throughout the 1970s and the 1980s, there's a lot of uh, research on this from the South African government, from uh, the, the uh, Rand University. Uh, we know that the State Department showered hundreds of millions of dollars on pro-Soviet groups, on pro-ANC groups. Uh, they gave $4 million to the Southwest Africa People's Organization uh, in what would become Namibia, another communist terrorist organization working with the Soviet Union. Um, and Sweden, of course, the Swedish government was crucial to all this. They were sending all this taxpayer money to the ANC, helping them out in every way they could. And remember, this all against the government that had the best, without question, human rights record on the entire continent.
continent. You know, you have to remember what was going on in the rest of Africa, uh, mass murdering communist dictators, butchering their political opponents, uh, genocides going on right and left. Uh, black people in South Africa, you know, again, they didn't have a perfect life, but they had by far the highest standard of living of Africans anywhere else on the entire African continent without any question. So remember, this is what we're dealing with, right? And the U.S. government portrayed this as, you know, a significant threat to our national security and all the rest of it. So eventually, under heavy pressure from the U.S. government, from the United Nations, from the Soviet Union, from Hollywood, from boycotts, from sanctions, from corporate America, uh, the Afrikaners, you know, they, they probably could have lasted indefinitely if they had wanted to. Uh, they had their own weapons industry that they had created. Uh, very, very stable government. But eventually the Afrikaners decided, they, they had a vote, and they decided to surrender power. And uh, what happened was uh, they had, uh, you know, elections where everybody was allowed to vote. And they basically created this unitary state where all these formerly self-governing nations and peoples were brought under a single government uh, called, you know, South Africa. They described it as the Rainbow Nation. Uh, Bill Jasper, my colleague at the New American, the senior editor, actually predicted exactly what was going to happen. You, you go back and you read the stuff he was writing in the 80s and early 90s. You'd think he must have had a crystal ball. But, um, you know, change then began, right? They put all of these different, very, very different nations under one single government, the South African government, a very powerful centralized government with a, a very leftist, left-wing constitution. And, um, you know, a lot of people thought that things were going to get bad really quickly. And it, it took time, right? Change took time. The communists had a very interesting strategy uh, the, for their revolution in South Africa. And the, the first step was actually to keep in place some of the economic structures that then existed because they knew that South Africa, of course, was the richest country by far on the continent. It was very advanced. Again, it was a first world nation. They wanted to keep this in place because it would help advance their communism. So they didn't want to just outright come out and destroy the economy like they had done in so many other countries. To give you a sense of how interconnected South African authorities were with the deep state, consider that in 2012, even when there was a, this genocide alert that we talked about earlier, the Socialist International, which is the world's largest alliance of socialist, communist, and Marxist political parties, uh, they run dozens and dozens of countries around the world, they decided to host their Congress in South Africa. Uh, Jacob Zuma was elected as one of the leaders. Um, and, you know, they talk about how, how great this was, the UN, and we need to move toward a global system of government. We need world socialism. Uh, in 2013, and two, um, after the death of Nelson Mandela, you actually had the ANC and the South African Communist Party admit Mind you, they had denied this for many, many years because the American people, if they had known they were, that their government was backing a communist terrorist, would have freaked out. But they finally admitted in 2013, after Mandela passed away, that he was actually not just a member of the Communist Party, which they denied all along so that Americans would be duped into supporting this, but he was actually a member of the Central Committee, the decision-making body of the South African Communist Party, which, of course, controlled the ANC. So, uh, you know, the pictures are everywhere of Mandela standing in front of the uh, Communist Party banner with the Communist Party leader, Joe Slovo. Uh, you know, anybody with two brain cells to rub together who was looking at this knew exactly what was happening. Again, go back and read The New American in the 80s and the 90s, and you'll see that, um, you know, it was, it was not a result of ignorance that the deep state did this. They knew exactly what they were doing. 
Uh, in 2014, though, the South African Communist Party and the ANC announced the radical second phase of their communist revolution. Uh, and this is where they were going to actually start nationalizing big sectors of the economy and start kind of dropping the mask and revealing what uh, was the plan all along, right? A communist revolution, a communist takeover of South Africa. Uh, in 2015, you had the ANC's National General Council proclaim that communist China, the most murderous dictatorship in all of human history, was actually the guiding loads star of our own struggle. Uh, in this uh, document that they put out, their foreign policy document, they celebrated the emergence of what was described as a post-Western New World Order. Uh, this is their terminology, not mine, right? This comes straight out of the deep state, just in case you were wondering. And so now, you know, we're in a situation where the Afrikaner nation in South Africa is on the verge of destruction. They are on the verge of being wiped out. Uh, a huge proportion of the population has already escaped. Maybe 20, 30 percent of the Afrikaner nation has already fled the country. Basically, anybody that could has left. You now have racist laws that uh, ban them from working jobs. So they're being fired from all their jobs. Uh, they're not allowed to get government contracts and the government there is enormous. So, you know, how can you have a business if you can't do business with the government? Uh, they have the, they call it the B legislation, which is basically uh, the overwhelming majority says the minority is not allowed to participate in these sectors of the economy. The minority is not allowed to do business. So you, you have the majority passing these very oppressive laws against the minority. You now have shanty towns where hundreds of thousands of Afrikaners who can't work who can't do anything, who can't access welfare, right? Welfare is not allowed for them in many cases, uh, who are now stuck living in these shanty towns. They can't get out. They can't work. They can't farm. They can't do anything. And so the Afrikaner nation is on the verge of destruction. It's a tragedy of enormous proportions. And um, it is a microcosm of what's going to be happening to the broader Western world if the deep state gets its way. So there are different solutions that have been talked about. You know, there's people talking about now a two-state solution where basically Western, the Western Cape would become an independent uh, Afrikaner homeland for Afrikaners of, you know, Dutch descent and colored uh, Afrikaners and so on, where the vast majority speak Afrikaans or the vast majority are Christian. And then uh, Eastern South Africa, would, would become its own nation and the ANC could govern over there. So that's one option. Uh, there's also a lot of people pursuing just a mass exodus of the Afrikaner people from South Africa. Uh, some have already started arriving in America as refugees. Some are going to Australia, Canada, uh, the Netherlands. Um, actually, the uh, the Home Affairs Minister of Australia, uh, Peter Dutton at the time, said that, uh, hey, you know what's happening in South Africa is unacceptable. He said, if you look at the footage, if you read the stories, you hear the accounts, it's a horrific circumstance they face. Um, he said, I do think on the information that I've seen that these people do need help. They need help from a civilized country like ours. The people we're talking about want to work hard. They want to contribute to a country like Australia. So we want them to come here, abide by our laws. And uh, again, you know, these are America's closest cousins. If there are any other people in the world who are similar to Americans in terms of our history, our culture, our religious values, uh, it is the Afrikaner people, right? Um, and Donald Trump talked about this. You know, Donald Trump talked about some of the horrors that were happening to South African farmers. He said he had ordered uh, Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo to investigate this. But uh, so far, you know, not a lot has happened. But I want to talk just for a moment before we uh, sign off here about the implications of this outside of South Africa. Right. Um, 
the Afrikaner people are kind of like the canary in the coal mine for Western Christian civilization. I mean, a far-flung, you know, outpost of Western Christian civilization on the on the Horn of Africa uh, is now being completely obliterated. And the process that occurred down there is actually very similar. It's like a microcosm, as I said, of what they're doing to the whole world, right? So in South Africa, you had, you know, this Afrikaner nation uh, kind of controlled its own destiny and was forced to surrender control of its own destiny, right? They, they, they were basically ordered to vote themselves into this situation that they're in now under pressure from the deep state. Well, now that is happening worldwide, right? You had uh, the recent Secretary General of the UN, Ban Ki-moon, talked about the UN as being this parliament of humanity, right? This, uh, this parliament of humanity. Well, if the UN becomes the parliament of humanity, uh, what does that mean for Americans, right? The parliament is a governing body that creates laws. Well, what happens if America becomes just one vote in this parliament of humanity? Well, the exact same thing that happened to the Afrikaners will happen to the American people. We will lose control over our own destiny. We will lose uh, the ability to decide what happens with our, our property, with our rights, and so on. Uh, Americans will become, quite literally, just like the Afrikaners in South Africa, politically powerless, right? They, they can have their wealth voted away, they can have their freedom stolen, they can have their destiny uh, taken away from them, the control of their own uh, future taken away from them. And so we need to understand that this is the deep state's plan, right? They wanna create a world government where basically America uh, and, and Western civilization would become like the Afrikaners in South Africa, but just on a global scale. Uh, we must resist this, right? We must maintain our freedom freedoms, our self-government, our sovereignty, our constitution. And the only way to do this is to expose the deep state and to go back to a proper understanding of our own history, our own amazing history, right? Um, let South Africa be a warning to you, America and Japan and Europe and Canada. Uh, this is what's coming to you if you're not careful. I'm Alex Newman. You're watching Behind the Deep State. Thank you for tuning in. Stay tuned for next week's episode and make sure you like, share, and subscribe. And God bless.